0: Hey everyone, David Kern here. Before we get to this week's episode, I just want to tell you about the Searcy Institute Atrium program. It's a one-year program that explores the foundations of Christian classical education with online classes and discussions. The Atrium now features five different courses, and participants can choose any one course or sign up for multiple courses. These courses include our very own Heidi White, our very own here on The Close Reads, talking about classical pedagogy. And then we've got Andrew Kern talking about classical rhetoric. Matthew Bianco talking about Plato's Republic. And then from West Callahan, you can choose either The Divine Comedy or The Iliad. So there are great options for anybody who wants to dig into any of these subjects. If you'd like to learn more, head over to circeinstitute.com atrium. Again, that's circeinstitute.com atrium. And once again, those courses are Heidi Wade on Classical Pedagogy, Andrew Kern on Classical Rhetoric, Matthew Bianco on Plato's Republic, or Wes Callahan on The Divine Comedy or The Iliad. One more time, that link is circeinstitute.com atrium. And with that, let's get to this week's conversation. I'm David Kern.
1: I'm Heidi White.
0: And I'm Tim McIntosh. And you are listening to Close Reads, a podcast for the incurable reader on which we are answering your questions about Cormac McCarthy's All the Pretty Horses. But first, as always, Tim, Heidi. Heidi, Tim, how are you? Heidi? (laughs) Yep. That was like a synchronized dive.
1: Heidi, Tim. (laughs) Um so you guys I have news about <laughs> Cormac McCarthy news of What the what's the news? Heidi White I finished the Border Trilogy.
2: Oh, All three?
1: did Yeah. So I might need some counseling. Mhm. But it's mm-hmm. great. It's great. Mm. That last book I was like I don't even want to read the next page Cities because I could feel it coming. So
0: like and a freight train. Yes. Yes. It's like the whole last half of Lonesome Dove, right, Tim? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. You know it's not going to end well. Well, Lonesome Dove is
1: long, so it's like that. You don't
2: want it to end well.
1: Yeah.
0: So shout out to Sarah Dahl, who was at the conference last week, and she came into the store today, and she bought Lonesome Dove and War and Peace. Nice. Whoa. On the counter next to each other was like 7,000 pages. I mean, not really, but like... 3,000 pages of book right in front of her. War and Peace and Lonesome Dove. And in many ways, I think Lonesome Dove might be the American War and Peace.
1: Ooh.
0: It might be. Different that conversation be. For, for
1: a different day.
2: Yes. <laughs> Heidi, were you pleased by the end of the board oh, Trilogy? Oh, it's
1: fabulous. It's, yeah. I mean, the whole, the crossing was lovely. Uh, Not as straightforward as all the pretty horses. Yeah. Definitely uh, take some interpretation. Uh, and then, cities of the plains is just i mean it's a beautiful novel and the, the ending is perfect and you wouldn't to your point tim you wouldn't want it to end any other way it had to end yeah. that way but it is so gut-wrenching at the yeah. same time
0: so as i mentioned this is a podcast episode on which we are going to be answering listener questions and there was a comment from mary cummings who said can we um consider a bonus episode on the rest of the border trilogy she said that she read it, and uh, Love McCarthy's voice would feel like his meaning is just beyond my grasp. All the pretty horses didn't seem as obscure. You know, I just want to say, we got as many questions <clears throat> for this book as any other book we've done. Hmm. The ratings for the episodes as they come out, as opposed to over the life of the episode, over the course of like a six-week period, are higher than they've ever been. Huh. And we got meaning more they questions via- up with subsequent
2: episodes. David, is that uh, what you mean? Well,
0: this, yeah, but this whole, this whole series on all the pretty horses is one of the most popular series we've ever done uh just in terms of the pure numbers of downloads and all that and then on email i got more emailed questions for this book than for any book we've ever done
1: wow so um
0: we were unsure of whether we should do this book but yeah we might mm-hmm. maybe we just plan on doing some more of the border trilogy next year um, here on- i love that idea. i love that yeah So we're gonna be the
2: crossing. I'd be really happy
0: over the next couple months. Tim and Heidi and I are gonna be, you know, plotting out 2022 here on Close Reads. We've got lots of ideas, and so one of the things we're gonna be doing is discussing what books we're gonna do. So maybe we'll have to throw that into the short list Mm -hmm. of uh, books worth discussing. I
1: love that. But we
0: we have a ton of questions, and I want to start with this one um, because I I can't like I can't wait to discuss this, Um, and it came from uh, I. I'm scrolling up to find it again. Sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. This is terrible. Tim, tell a joke. Um, so, um, a okay, I found dad it. walks into a bar. Kid. Yeah. I'm glad we... Found
1: it. No, wait. Now, God.
0: I, <laughs> now I want to know what happened to the dad who walked into a bar. Dad walks into a bar and tells a dad joke. Um, okay. But Reed asks, the movie, how does it compare to the book? Heidi and Tim, have you seen the movie? No. Yeah. I have many thoughts about this tim what do you think first i don't think it's a terrible movie it,
2: it, the cliche is oh but if you've seen the book and you know that's the cliche like i just don't understand how you could put this book into a movie somebody could do it but it's not the people who did that movie it's like Terrence malick waiting in the wings needs okay.
0: to do this movie so here's the thing about this 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 there are two great tragedies in the history of hollywood The Magnificent Ambersons, which Orson Welles did, and his cut was taken away from him, and the studio released it as a different edition with a much happier ending that is a little bit less consistent with the book. Great book, by the way. Would be a good close-reads book. Highly recommend. They took the cut away from him, and his cut is out there somewhere. And it's very... I'm not... there's There's this legendary thing about what happened to the actual Orson Welles cut of The Magnificent Ambersons. The same thing happened with all the pretty horses. So Billy Bob really? Thornton was the director of this movie. Matt Damon stars in it. Penelope Cruz is in it. It's got—I I th- want to say like Brian Eno or somebody like that—did the soundtrack, right? And Matt Damon to this day says that this would have been the best movie he ever was in, had the studio not taken it away from Billy Bob Thornton. Really? The original movie is over four hours long, and. And the studio took it away. The movie ended up being about 2.10, I think. 2.15, something like that. So they cut out all of the poetry of the original movie. This cut is nowhere to be found. Um, I believe that one of the things that's happening is whoever did the music, and I want to say it was Brian Eno, someone can look that up, or Daniel Lanois, one of those people, like a really big, like great music producer who's worked with U2 and all kinds of people like that. They refuse... To let their soundtrack be used. Because, no way. Because of the, you know what, that the studio pulled. So Billy Baum Thornton has this cut out there that is supposed to be the original director's cut of all the pretty horses. And it almost certainly will never see the light of day because of what the studio did to it. You can read about this online if you Google it. The, as Tim said, the movie that we get, it's fine. But it's not the book. And there is a cut out there that is more talent, Terrence Malick than like, you know, what why we
2: got. doesn't What I don't understand is why doesn't the studio release it? Like, what do they have to lose? It's not as if I don't, the existing version is pulling tons of watches on Netflix. Like, release the real version.
0: I, well, I think that everyone that's involved refuses to work together now on it. Because everyone's so mad about it. Like, really? wow. to get the composer and to get... Uh, the 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 director Billy Bob Thornton back on board, they have like all these agreements have to be made. It's all these different kinds of things that have to happen to get us to get a cut out there. This you know legal matters and all that kind of stuff. And I, I think they're all so mad about it that they refuse to. And because the original soundtrack was then. Redone, So it's like some of it's in the movie and some of it's not in the movie. And it's a, it's a good deep dive, but it's one of the great Hollywood tragedies in terms of a studio right. taking away. And that happened a lot. I mean, it happens all still, but it happened a lot pre 1950. Um, but the, but those are the two that are like kind of legendary for.
1: So I have two things up. to say right now. Number one, you guys let's do like an oceans 11 type of thing. When we find that.
2: We bust out. Yeah. Billy Bob Thornton's draft.
1: And Yes. We should do that. Okay, so put that on the action item list for our close reads meetup when we talk about planning the year. Secondly, okay. I could knock but, that out of. We're going to
0: do it in LA right? then. Yeah. So yeah. don't
1: forget that's that's got to go on the list. Secondly, there's nothing more fun to me than seeing David come alive to something and get really excited because his like <laughs> limbs flail about. I wish you could see. <laughs> he got really excited about this.
0: My limbs flail. That's um. <laughs>
2: Your limbs were flailing, David. I was that just was
0: speaking with my hands. Right. That's what flailing is. Yeah. No, flailing is like when you're like the the uh, one of those wind, those like balloon things like outside, of like a puppet. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> outside of like a tax return company or like a car dealership, and you're like.
1: Well, it wasn't that. It was yeah. it was purposeful. So maybe it wasn't flailing. But <laughs> I take I take issue with it.
0: With, with the phrase choice. with the word flailing okay uh i do feel like there was a lot of flailing uh in this book though so seems All like right, it's there we go
1: nice nice, nice transition mm. um
0: mm. okay let's let's mm. let's go to some questions here we've got a question here an email here from joe herlihy herlihy don't know how she pronounces this she has some questions on love and some questions on civilization so we shouldn't have any trouble.
1: Oh, good. I'm an Bite expert size. on both of those things. Bite
0: so. Yeah, right. She says, is John Grady's search for love posed as, as an existential meta- metaphorical search, i.e. the lonely soul wandering the earth, but ultimately it will not find a home as our human condition is one that is ultimately destined to be alone in the world. Or is love posed as something that is not universal as it cannot cross boundaries um, because it is imprisoned in particular cultures? I figured we start with a nice easy one. Should we start with the civilization one? <laughs> right.
1: I, I would like that question a lot and I'm not sure it has to be either or. I think that stories work on multiple levels. And I think what Cormac McCarthy is doing and what he is posing questions more than posing a you know kind of a cohesive theory about the meaning of life. He's raising these questions yeah. I think that are very well said in that particular question. So yeah, I'm not sure I'm ready to take a side on that as much as to say, yes, that's a really great question that's raised by the novel. (laughs) What do you think Tim?
2: Yeah, I I think it's, I I would say it is a good question. And I would say both. I think it's both of what she poses.
0: This question is interesting. I have a Mm -hmm. theory. I think, so she says, is John Grady's search for love posed as an existential uh, metaphorical one? I'm not sure if she's making a distinction there. So an existential metaphorical one or as something that is not universal and can't cross boundaries because it is imprisoned in culture. So I think that by definition, the search for love in literature and in all the arts is inherently existential and also metaphorical because that search for love always represents something in the story and is always still tied to an existential desire within that individual character. And then it also has, it can't help but have some kind of larger metaphorical um, meaning within the community of the story like within the world like i don't i think it it inherently has to be both like i don't think there is is a way for it to be if i mean i guess if the book's just not good but like first for love to be explored in art in a profound way it inherently has to be both so like that's why i think the question is great but it's like a false dichotomy as far as how we experience it within the arts
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's right, David. I also think that her, the second part of our question is really interesting to me because the first part, yes, right? The second part is the idea of love being encapsulated. What's the word? Imprisoned? Yeah. That's so great because, I mean, this is the border trilogies, right? So we're always going to be looking out for boundaries and borders. There were lots of questions about that on the um on the Facebook page about rivers and horses and what are, and culture, what are the boundaries? Why can't these two people who are so madly in love with each other, why can't they be together? Is it, is is it a failing on the part of John Grady Cole? Is it like a moral question? Is it a tragedy? Is it, um, or is it something that could have been avoided? And, and so I think that that second part of the question fit to your point, David, actually fits so well into the first part, right? Cause we have those same questions about our own life and our own journeys to love. So I love that. It's um, yeah, that's all. Like lo-
0: okay. So like in the arts, the whole point of search for love is that it's tied to a beloved or a community, usually both, but then also it is an individual experience. Like, even if you love someone who loves you back and you're in a relationship, the love that you experience and the love that you receive are individual while also being part of a community, like as part of a whole. And so it's both part of the existential experience, like ed- ex- existential, you know, human individual experience, and also is what ties you to the community that it, that it, that it is imprisoned in. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, so Tim, were you going to yeah, say? nothing to okay, so? add. Okay. So then Joe continues. <laughs> Um, although she has a long thread on the, the great aunt, which we may need to respond to in email because she, um, I don't know if I have time to read the whole thing here. She, she has a question about civilization and justice. She says, "While McCarthy appears to be very sympathetic to the plight of ancient peoples and souls and a more general sense of worlds inhabited by spirits, regardless of who currently populates the land. Is he also saying that a civilization like America does have qualities that give it merit? So, On the one hand, McCarthy appears to be sympathetic to the plight of these ancient peoples and the souls that populate a land. But what is he then also saying about civilization and what qualities give it merit? McCarthy talks so little about the United
2: States. I mean, the action of this book happens in Mexico, and I think Mexico is sort of... uh, Cast in relief with the United States. And I think the thing that it's cast in relief with is the United States is kind of um, tending toward mechanization, kind of a, maybe a demystification in a way that, that sociologists talk about, um, you know, like the late 19th, early 20th century is this kind of movement toward away from um, like a sacrilegial sacrilegious, sorry, that's not the right word, a sacred and religious vision of the world. I, I think if McCarthy says anything about the United States and I'm speculating here, I think that it's the land that has been, or that is being desacralized, meaning it's becoming unsacred, not because of a lack of belief but um, I think like maybe the, industri- the effects of the industrial revolution are really pronounced in the United States. And I think McCarthy highlights that at certain kind of key moments when John Grady Cole crosses back into Texas, the very first thing that we see is a machine, a car, the hood up, or I guess it was a truck and two men kind of like working on it. We haven't really seen much of anything mechanized in Mexico for right. yeah, the several months we've point. been down there. So again, I'm kind of speculating based on just the little glimpses that we see of the United States in the book. Most of it happens in Mexico.
1: I think that's true, but I also think we have, because Cormac McCarthy is complex and nuanced as every great writer is, we have uh, two amazing artifacts to be lauded and held up from America. And that's John Grady Cole and Rollins, right? Like we have these cowboys that are representative of the new world and they are, they have this jarring traumatic experience in the old world and they, like they more than rise to the challenge. Right. And so I think that through them, we get to see kind of, McCarthy's vision of what's best about America and about the new world uh, and and kind of pits that against this old world savagery and, and sees what happens, right? It's like just cast them into the ring and see what happens as a result of that. Um, and they are heroic, but they're also very uh traumatized and destroyed by it at the same time and so we have then at the end of the novel a very complex image of how the old world meets the new world
2: one thing that i noticed on this read was that when mccarthy kind of gives the mic to one of the mexican kind of secondary characters i'm thinking especially of the man who before john grady cole goes to to speak to the aunt he goes and has this long conversation with um the man who's in charge of the horses, and he's this very secondary character, and he waxes about the nature of the horse and the nature of men men's souls and the ma- nature of horses' souls. And there, and I think whenever McCarthy does that, it's always through the kind of voice or or utterings of a Mexican person. And John Grady Cole and Rollins are almost incapable of doing this. They're Mm -hmm. fascinated by it, but that's not how their mind works. It's, they're not in a way they're not, they are already kind of desacralized.
0: They're not able to express that
2: poetry. They're not, they are attracted to it. They're, it's like wonderfully appealing to them. That's not how their heart sings.
0: So is there something about that, the culture that they've been thrust into that trains or uh, helps the people who live in it see that poetry? Like if they live there for a long time, would they eventually be able to express
2: that poetry? I wonder. I wonder. It would be something other than their heart language. I'm sad to report because I love John Grady Cole and I love Rollins and I respect their kind of stoic fortitude and... Mm -hmm. I mean, they keep on going, and I and I think that's I think of that as very American, and I respect it and like it so much. I just don't know that their hearts would ever be able to sing in that in that kind of native tongue.
0: Mm-hmm. So, speaking of their hearts singing, Elizabeth Troutman asks a question. She says, um, "I have millions of questions, and they may be too convoluted to read on the podcast, but we're going to find out." Mm-hmm. Uh, the second one is like a rabbit hole I went down that I thought I would share with you all. The first one might be easier to answer. So in her first question, she says, can you talk more about what the horses mean? Besides the fact that JGC has a talent connection with horses and they are connected to his longings. It seems like there's more going on, but what is it? We're told in part one, that JGC would find horses if he were in a world that didn't have them. In part two, we have the old Mexican saying that God would never have a world without horses. Horses keep reappearing in dreams. Are they some window to another reality or something? What do we think about this? I think we got a couple other questions, even on the Facebook thread, related to this. And it, you know, it's a great probably, question. It is all the pretty horses, so we probably should ad- address this question.
1: Yeah, I think that the horses are, I'm just endlessly fascinating and really, really complex, and there's no way to cover the depth of the symbolism of the horses, uh, but. Uh, they're obviously represent more than just themselves, right? Like they, and I think they're this like mediating figure between worlds, between the old world, between the new world, between uh, transcendence and concrete material reality. Um, They are kind of the pathway to love for him and Alejandra. That's like their connecting point, right? They are... um, they're his work, his vocation, um, which then goes to his identity as a man. Like it's like this mediator of his manhood as well. Um, and between the cultures, like there's just so much depth of this of, to the horses and horses are a very primal image in our own minds, right? Like they're if you look, if, we've talked some about kind of the mythopoeic landscape of this novel, that it, that it has this primeval or uh, mythological quality to it. Although it's also fully itself in its own setting, which is that takes a great author to be able to pull that off. Um, Mm -hmm. And so, but if you look into say our, um, kind of those really deep, what word am I looking for? Um, Primal, I guess, Uh, The the long term kind of roots of the images of horses, you go back to like the Crusades, right? The cowboys, obviously, which is now like horses are tied to so much um, within the human psyche. And all of it is explored and played with in this novel. So whatever you're thinking, whatever our listeners are thinking, I wonder if the horses represent blah, blah, blah. Chances are yes. Right. They're a very fluid symbol. They don't represent just one thing. It has kind of all of this collective unconscious quality of symbolism that McCarthy is playing with intentionally and letting us letting our imaginations go there. So this is one of those like sky's the limit kind of as long as you can support it in the text. It's probably there
0: yeah and I think like you know at the end we get the scene where it talks about the country was so desolate that there's no cattle, but then there's the mm-hmm. one bull, and I think the horses horses are the creatures that let the people survive in the desolate country, mm-hmm. you know um they carry them across it there's the horses are um the he, at the beginning of the book it talks about the warriors who rode the horses into battle, who rode the horses the horses across the plains, the ancientness the of horses it ties man to that sense of timelessness and carries them, carries humankind into the future. Um, And I, so I think that's a pretty crucial part of it. Like that timelessness, mythopoeic, like mythical folklore of, of horses is like deeply is one of the things like ties the people to the land and allows for civilization to be built. Um, So there's like all the things that it represents within the individual soul, like in, within John Grady's soul or within his relationship with Alejandra. And then there's the, like what horses meant to mankind at large. Mm -hmm. Um, I think both of those things are there to your point. Like if you think it's there, it's probably there. (laughs) Tim, what about you? Well, I, I just want to underscore something that you,
2: have both said that we we live in a kind of horseless society now. That sounds a little bit strange, a horseless society. Um, but for like two thousand years at a minimum, any time that we walked out into the street of any sort of town that was you know larger than. 10 people, the first thing that you would probably smell would be horse flesh. Horses are everywhere in an agrarian society and in kind of like a pre-industrial society. And so again, this fits kind of neatly for me into my understanding of the book, or at least of the kind of like border space between the United States is becoming more and more mechanized and Mexico as being, is still being part of the old world. Horses are so integral to that world. And they're still integral to the United States at this point, but we're at the beginning of the place where horses are going to be kind of confined to um, equestrian amusement and um, kind of in, in memory, you know, but they are anything but that in this book, they are anything but something of amusement and memory. They are the, they are like the fundamental link between human beings and the natural world. They are a signal of great wealth. They are the primary factor in any sort of agrarian pursuits. If you're gonna plow a field, you've got to have at a minimum one horse so again if part of what we're seeing in the book is the movement away from this old world and with all of its dangers and with all of its mystery the horse is fundamental to that old world and it's becoming less fundamental to that new world and it's not fundamental to our world anymore but we are living in an, we're living in a time that is very much at odds the last 2000 years, which horses were
0: everywhere, everywhere, everywhere. It seems like at the end when he's riding off into the sunset or whatever, sunrise, sunset, whichever one it was into the distance that he's almost riding into a liminal, this like weird liminal space where like, yeah, it's, it's the, the age of horselessness is coming, but he's riding, he's like riding off into this. I mean, even the year I would, it's right around the forties or whatever, right? late, late <clears> thirties, And the the mechanization of American life is going to spread across the world. It's going to overwhelm the country that he lives in, even in the most rural areas. And uh, he's riding off into that.
1: I love that. that space. Because that brings a new thought to me that I hadn't thought before, which is that the characters in the Border Trilogy are themselves borders to a certain extent, right? Like they are they dwell in a liminal space because things are changing. Hmm. And so John Grady Cole is himself like this border dweller in time as well as in Mm -hmm, space. mm -hmm. Hmm.
0: Nathan Coulter and John Grady Cole.
1: Right. Yep. Very different books, (laughs) but similar idea.
0: (laughs) Okay. uh, This is uh, another question from Elizabeth. After JGC crosses the river back home, he sees three men a man who acts like a father to him, passes judgment, and from whom JGC seeks forgiveness. A man who thinks of himself as an incarnation of God and who spreads the word, and the one with whom JGC still has a real loving connection. I can't unsee the Trinity now, and I don't, under- don't know what McCarthy is doing with this. So, there's no question there. Do you want to comment on this? Hmm. For me, that's a reach.
2: I mean it's a 3. I just I don't know. I don't threes see that every always,
1: 3 is it. Th- 3s are always important and Christians are going to immediately see the trinity. But 3s and I think that there's some truth in the fact that the reason th- our souls respond to 3s is a tr- is fundamentally trinitarian reason, right? But 3s in general in books tend to be kind of this idea of coming full circle. Right. One, two, three feels complete. If you only saw two, it would feel incomplete. And so there's this. But I like the idea of, say, like the judge, the priest and, you know, like the father, these kinds of ideas of, again, this archetypal blessing on John Grady Cole as he kind of goes out into the borders. Right.
0: So. Can I, I didn't read the her whole comment on purpose because now I want to read the next paragraph that she says. So she says that, and then she says, okay, think about this. It's like the whole book ends the same way that the Nicene Creed does. Nicene Creed. We look forward to the co- resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. So in the book, you can track the, she, she says, you can track the Nicene Creed through the last chapter. So she says, maybe father, son, and spirit. So the Trinity. And then she says, we believe in one holy Catholic church. She, he goes to a funeral. We affirm one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. There's this imagery of his face being wet after the funeral. Um, uh, she, four days later, she says, I mean, not two, not five, the day that you would be riding a horse if you were resurrected in three days. Uh, we look forward to the resurrection of the dead with the bull, which that's a kind of classic symbol. And then the phrase, the world to come is how the book ends. So she says, what is he saying? I know it's not an endorsement of Christianity, but is he pointing to the existence within the world on the journey as opposed to at the end of the journey or is he criticizing Christianity as insufficient? Is he criticizing the world itself for existing this way? Or is JGC actually dead? What, 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 or am I a crazy person who is overreading? Um, I need a book club so I cannot bother you guys with my intense questions, but every book club I join him, I'm too intense for them.
1: <laughs> <laughs> oh, well you're, you're in good company. Is it Elizabeth? Is that what you said? Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. Good company here. I think that what's, What's, there's, there's some overlap here between religious symbolism and literary tropes. And I, I, I think that McCarthy is unlikely to be trying to make a Christian statement, but very likely to be utilizing established literary and archetypal ideas uh, in well order said. to end his wonderful archetypal novel.
2: That's very well said.
0: Would you like to add anything to it? Nope. Nope. I think you could you could write and think and discuss a lot about McCarthy's presentation of religion in all of his books.
1: Absolutely. Um,
0: and it seems like he changes and evolves and sometimes is more pro and sometimes is more con um religion. Um and I don't think we have time to truly get into that. I think you could you could write a pretty I'm sure someone has written a pretty good dissertation on the topic. Okay, this question is from uh, Mariana. She says First, she says, without your recommendation and encouragement, I never would have picked up this book or at least made a page past five. So thank you very much. Um, I love says, page
1: five. It's so good. Yeah, it's like, a great page.
0: Know. Yeah. <laughs> okay, she says, the book starts with the grandfather's funeral and end with, ends with the abuela's funeral. At first, I thought her funeral was kind of random, but I don't think that anymore. JGC mentions that she had been with his family for 50 years. His parents were absent. Is it possible that he was raised by the grandfather and by the Mexicans who worked on the ranch? The father says on page 25, Luisa looked after you, her and Abuela. I might be wrong about this, but we know the Mexicans by name, but we don't know his father or his mother's name, giving the impression that Luisa and Arturo were closer to him than his own parents, and he was also fluent in Spanish. At the funeral, he mentions the names he knew or had known. By starting and ending the book with these funerals, is McCarthy revealing who were the pillars in JGC's life and who provided his moral compass? Mm-hmm. I think so. Yes. Remember when he's um,
2: putting the shoulder of the sheriff back in his socket? My family had been practicing medicine on Mexicans longer, you know, for generations or something yeah. like that. Yeah, yeah. I, if I had to bet, I would bet exactly what the questioner hypothesized about. His upbringing. I bet it was his grandfather primarily and the Mexican men and women that were working the ranch. I think those are his primary influences more than his mom and his dad.
1: Which is why he can speak Spanish, which is important to the novel on a plot level. And it's also why he exists as this character, this border crossing character, right? He can go down to Mexico and find himself at home there much more quickly than Rollins does. And that's why I think he carries with him some sense of belonging, like he expects to be able to fit in down there and is absolutely flabbergasted when he can't. Uh, And so I think that that Knowledge of his childhood is important. And also, whenever I see a child who's orphaned, which I do understand he's a young man and all the things that we've talked about, he is still a 17-year-old human being, right? Like he's Mm -hmm. young and he's systematically orphaned multiple times throughout the novel. And orphaning in a novel is always significant because it's this untethering of a character from, from the past and from their bonds, right? Which then sets them free again into the borders this is and this necessary that at the end of the novel that john grady cole goes off into the sunset completely alone completely alone and so we have to like cut off every single bond he has which is a bummer for this character but really important for the tone of the novel and the themes of the novel
0: so her second Mar- mariana mariana's second question is If we assume this, that Abuela Luisa and Arturo played an important part in his upbringing, um, JGC asks Rollins, how are they making it? Um, He doesn't ask but anyone else. If there's a strong connection there, does that then explain his choice to travel to Mexico? His roots in the U.S. have been severed, so maybe he will discover his place in the world to be in Mexico.
1: Yeah, I think it's a good plot reason for him to go to Mexico, right? Like he's just right by the border and he's got to get out of town and he knows how to speak Spanish. And he's not, I mean, he's just a guy, right? He's not setting off to go on some mythological archetypal adventure Walk about. quest, right? Like he's just a guy going to start a new life and he can ride horses and speak Spanish. So why not go to Mexico? It's like five minutes away, right? Like this is... So we have to have some kind of like plot reason. He's not going off to, you know, like destroy the one ring. He's just going off to start a new life. So the quest motif is interpretive on the part of the reader. It's not intentional on the part of John Grady Cole, right? So it's something that happens to him in a sense. And so it makes like John, so Cormac McCarthy has to build in these reasons why it just makes sense to him to go. So that's a good one. That's a good reason.
2: I can just imagine Rawlings and John Grady Cole kind of before they set out. You know, Rollins, wait, why are we going to Mexico again? And John Grady Cole, archetypal
0: masculine journey. <laughs> and Rollins being like, What?
1: What? Right? W-U-T.
0: Uh, okay. W U T. What? <laughs> I suppose that sounds like something we
2: should do. Right. When we come down here, are you serious about archetypal yeah. masculine journey? Cause that, it sure feels like that's what we're on. <laughs> I didn't expect this to be what that is, what that's like.
0: Right.
2: I thought we were going to go wrangle some horses, but it nope. sure feels
0: like an archetypal masculine <laughs> journey. <laughs> it's feeling You're way like more.
1: Nailing the accent. It's
0: feeling way, way more archetypal than I was hoping. <laughs>
1: does that mean I'm going to have to go to prison? Yes. Yes, it does.
0: <sighs> Insert word that we can't say on the show, exactly. but is in the book.
1: Right.
0: Um, she uh, she 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 asks. There's this. She says. There's this line where Rollins asks JGC, "Where is your country?" And JGC answers, "I don't know where it is. I don't know what happens to country." What is this? What do you think he, this means? Where does this happen in the book? Page 299, according to uh, Mariana. Bottom of 299. Catch your yeah. horse, he said, or else will follow me. Rollins walked out and caught the horse and stood holding it. "'Where is your country?' he said. "'I don't know,' said John Grady. "'I don't know where it is. "'I don't know what happens to country.' Rollins didn't answer. "'I'll see you, old partner,' said John Grady. "'All right, I'll see you.' He stood holding his horse while the rider turned and rode out and dropped slowly down the skyline. He squatted on his heels so as to watch him a little while longer. But after a while, he was gone. "'Oh, because right before this, he says, "'This is still a good country.' And then uh, he says, yeah, I know it is, but it ain't my country. Hmm. He rose and turned. And then he says, you know, he starts to go and the horse follows him. And then he says, catch your horse, he'll follow me. And then Rollins says, where is your country? Because he says, it ain't my country. This ain't my country. Yeah. So the question is, what was the question, David? Well, she says, what does this mean? She actually offers a hypothesis, but I wanted to ask you guys first. Would you want to hear her hypothesis? Yeah, uh, she says, "Is Cormac McCarthy alluding to the fact that we're all pilgrims on this earth? Our true country is not of this world, Past and paled into the darkening land, the world to come." She—that's the last line. She then points out that she had something to ask about the bull, but her one-year-old is tearing up the kitchen, which is hilarious. That's,
1: that's right. It's an objective. Such paralysis. a good sentence.
0: That's right. Yeah, Bo- she would Chansha. ask about the bull, but then there's the... yeah, exactly. So go ahead, Heidi.
1: Yeah. So I do. I think that Cormac McCarthy is asking questions. He's never going to be making a Christian point. <laughs> so, um, what we have at the end of the novel is a man well, on the border, right? What I mean is that it's never going to be a religious allegory. That's, so,
0: Okay, that's fine. That's different than what you said, though. His, Isn't
1: it? I, I Well, yes. And we go back. We already have had this conversation. I don't think he's making a Christian point, point. and that's what I originally said, which I stand by. Do you not agree with that?
0: I don't know what we mean by it. Yeah. So what is the, making well, a Christian the question point then?
1: was is he making the statement that this world is not our home, which to me is a very Christian statement, right? As if we were made for a better world. This is not our world, and of course, th- those right? are two and different. Oh okay, go ahead,
0: okay, so I think that it's not a Christian point. I think it's a human point. I think that the the answer to that human desire is the Christian part
1: right maybe maybe so because does that and, make sense yes, but and there's other world religions that would say this world is not our home right well, So maybe that's not, it's not fair to call that a Christian point, but it is a religious point. Yeah. And I I think that what Cormac McCarthy is, I do not think that the moral of the story is that the world is not our home. I, I think that we have a, but we do have to the, to the question raised on Facebook, what we do have is an exploration of the world's brokenness and the feeling that we have inside of longing for a home and not being able to find it of being a man without a country to be a cowboy without a country, right? Like that's a, there's, there's a great sadness and longing in that and unmet desire. And if, if that is kind of what you're, what you're getting at in the question of this world is not our home, then yes, that, but if, if, if the question is, is Cormac McCarthy saying, don't get too attached here because there's a better place? I think, no.
2: Yeah. Okay. What if he's saying, don't get too attached here. um, And this world is, is fundamentally, um, it lacks the sort of satisfaction that we seem to crave. And it lacks the sort of clarity and finality of justice that we seem to crave. I think he's saying, I'll just make an assertion. I think he's saying that I do share your, maybe suspicion is too strong of a word, but I'll say suspicion that Clement McCarthy is offering like a true and substantial hope beyond the grave that is instantiated in the Christian tradition. I don't think he's doing that, but I do think that he is, I do think that he is very, uh, especially later, open to that idea. And I also think that he is suspicious of how that idea has been bastardized Mm -hmm. and made into something that it's not by, by, practitioners of whatever narcissism and money.
1: Mm, right. I agree with that completely. And I mean, the, the question of, is this world enough for the human soul? If like, that is in every one of Cormac McCarthy's books, like, mm-hmm. and, yeah. and what do we do with the fact that this world is so broken and yet I long for the good, like that is, and I tried to do the right thing. And it blew up in my face, you know, like all of these big, human questions are there i will stand by in this novel particularly he is not answering any of these questions he is asking the questions
0: yeah and I, I mean i don't disagree with that i the only the only thing i would take issue with is i don't know that he's even asking the questions i think he's I, like what do you mean? If, if you think, if you mean you mean he's asking the questions in the sense that they come up.
1: Yeah, he's bringing them to the surface, right? Yeah, the story
0: yeah. brings them to the surface. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, might, I imagine he's not even thinking about that when he's writing it. Like, I don't suspect that he's like, these are the questions I want to ask. And so I'm going to tell a story that asks those questions. It's definitely not an allegory. And I definitely agree that the moral is not that the world is, is our home and there is another place. Like, I don't think he thinks in terms of morals when he tells a story.
1: Agreed, totally agree.
0: But yeah. what I think, I think the book Is about the reality that living here is complicated. Yes. Because that's what all books are about. Yes. I just think that's what all stories are about. It's like, it's complicated living in this world, which often feels like it's not our own and we don't fit. And almost all books are about how you survive. (laughs) Um, Like that's kind of what art is. It's like a coping mechanism (laughs) for living in the dark, in a place that's broken or ill you know, a world that's, that's broken and diseased. And um, so I don't think he's telling, I don't think it's an analogy. I don't think it's a moral. I don't think he is purposefully, I don't think he's asking those questions in a direct way, but I do think that's what the books are about. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: Is that too, am I being pedantic by making that distinction? No, I don't think so.
1: No, I think it's really important. And I, I think we really, it's really important to know Cormac McCarthy is not a Christian and he is not writing a Christian book, but because we are Christians, we can see the true longings of the heart that come through the story, right? We can, we can identify those. And he's, he's a human asking human questions. And, and so we have this moral imagination that can come in and fill in those gaps, but he, that's not what he's doing or intending to do. He's just raising, yeah, he's telling a great story.
2: There's a um, enlightenment philosopher, Rene Descartes, and he has this famous kind of philosophical inquiry that culminates with this phrase that we all know, I think therefore I am. And it's often taught as this like really profound insight. Oh my gosh, he kind of revolutionized um, philosophy with this one bold move and the new locus of authority is in the individual and it's no longer in... The church tradition or in the Bible. And I think all of that is for the most part true. He's doing something really profound and meaningful. What's really interesting is that so many of the things that Descartes asserts asserts, and that are held up and esteemed as being really profound, you can actually find them in the Christian tradition that he was raised in as a Frenchman in the 17th century. I think therefore I am is actually, I think an echo of something that St. Augustine wrote. And I, I would say that something like that maybe is happening with McCarthy. I think that he was raised. um, I think maybe Catholic, but at least kind of like raised in the Bible drenched South of Tennessee. And I think so much to your point, Heidi of It's very easy to read him as being deeply influenced by Christianity. I do think to take it a step farther and say that he has a Christian point that he's trying to make. I don't think so. I would love it. I would love it because this is maybe this is my favorite living author in the English language. I would love it, but I can't in good faith assert that
0: that's what he's trying to do. Yeah, he was definitely raised Catholic, um, or at least that's what biographical information you can find says. I'm sure once, sometime in the next 25 years, there'll be a, like a pretty good biography that comes out about him. But um, he told Oprah once. She said, "What do you do? You believe in God or whatever?" And he said, "Depends on the day that you ask me."
1: Mm-hmm. I get really excited when as Tim, about what Tim just pointed out about Descartes and what we see in McCarthy. I think it's so exciting to me and nourishing to me to know that in writing a good story you're going to raise the really human questions and and you're going to find yourself within an existing tradition that does reach into those questions and attempt to answer them or honor them or whatever like so that's in in writing. I I'm just fully convinced any great story is a Christian story. Although I'm not hung up on using Christian as an adjective ever, right? Um, but that. I love about McCarthy. I love that he's not a Christian and yet he writes a story that so gets to the longings of the, of the soul Mm -hmm. and the question of the fall Mm -hmm. and of, is it possible to find redemption and forgiveness in this world? Is this world a beautiful place? Like he just gets into those questions without making any kind of moral statement about them, just to get into them. And I love that. I think that's so powerful that you can't escape the reality of the faith, um, even if you're, you don't identify yourself within the faith. And that's why I kind of defend that pretty strongly. That's why I come across as like, he's not a Christian. Mm. He's not, but isn't that even more powerful? Right. right? Like,
2: right. Yeah, I, I, I think so. I mean, maybe there's an analogous relationship here to Herman Melville. Like it's hard to read Moby Dick and not hear the echoes of like this, this not hear the echoes of Christianity in the kind of wailing adventures of Ishmael, even the name Ishmael has such a, it's such a potent figure in the history of the Old Testament and in subsequent the kind of in, in the world of the Middle East. So I, but, but I don't think that Herman Melville, that his project is advocating for Christianity. If anything, you maybe can make the case that he's arguing against it in like very sophisticated ways, but boy, all through his writings is this kind of like biblical resonance, both in language, in motif, and in symbol. And I think that McCarthy is
1: mm-hmm. the same way. Same. I agree. And this always makes me, this conversation, I get excited about this conversation. I It always makes me think of Monet, who... When he, when Monet was painting, like with water lilies, for example, his most famous painting, right? He was trying to separate himself from the Christian tradition. He was attempting to show that beauty is merely random, it's just tiny points on a canvas, right? So I can create a beautiful picture that completely undercuts uh, this idea of a unifying beauty. The problem is, is that he created one of the most beautiful paintings in the history of, I mean, his paintings are so lovely and so unifying and so beautiful. So in attempting to undercut this idea of objective beauty, he actually contributed to the objective beauty of the artistic tradition. And I think that's really powerful. Mm and I think that upholds the faith. It doesn't undercut it. We don't need our artists and authors to be Christian in order for the faith to be upheld within the tradition. And I think we see that with Claude Monet. I think we see that with Melville and we definitely see it with McCarthy. Mm.
0: I just got disconnected. Yeah, we
1: lost David for a second, but good news. So, we were talking about something really interesting. So,
0: <laughs> Tim, you were saying that you thought he was raised Catholic and that's true. Um, uh, but he was on Oprah. Have you seen the Oprah conversation where he talks about religion? No, I haven't seen that part. What, I saw little snippets they? of it here and there. She asks him if he believes in God. And he says, he said, well, I mean, it kind of depends on the day. Oh, really? Huh. Yeah. And so he, he, I think it gets overstated the degree to which he's not interested in, you know, Catholic and traditional Christian views of looking at the world. Um, but I think that because he's so steeped his as a child, in particular in Catholic theology, in, in the Catholic experience, it comes out sort of organically, even if yeah. he doesn't necessarily, you know, I think people just explore the things they're interested in. Absolutely. I think almost never is someone really trying, people who are trying to make points become either bad novelists or philosophers. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> mm-hmm. pe-
1: Unless they're Wendell Berry.
0: People who are, yeah, I, I, we can argue about that another time. <laughs> Uh, but they can, um, I mean, I think he's just so steeped in it. I think he's exploring the things that he's interested in the things that he's thinking about. And I, I think those questions okay. arise naturally. And so if you're, if you're also steeped in them, you, those are things you're going to recognize. It's like when you speak, when you listen to someone who's speaking a different language that you only know, partly you're going to recognize the parts that you know. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. we got, we, we should keep going though. Cause we got a bunch of more questions. Um, Fern brings up the point that, JGC's mother is not mentioned again at the end of the book during the wrap up. So, what role do you see her serving in the uh, story arc? She says it seemed almost, it almost seemed she was used as a side character just to move the story along. As a mother, her choices are integral to JGC's life, and I would have liked more closure in her storyline. People asked a couple follow ups there. Uh, What's your thoughts on this? What role does she serve in the story arc?
1: I mean, she's, she, it's it's yet another orphaning of John Grady Cole, right? Um and it also provides a really really strong psychological motivation for his attraction to unavailable women who yes. need to be rescued.
2: Yes. Yeah. It's like to answer that question, it might be helpful first to ask the question, are moms important? You know. <laughs> <laughs> and yes. so the answer is so obviously yes and so Now the next question is, can you imagine what would happen to a young man in the middle of his kind of like development toward becoming a man, this was 16 years old, if his mom just kind of vacated and he never, and like, maybe he's never going to see her again, except for when she's acting on a stage. Can you imagine what that might do to a person? And so, I mean, like so many things with McCartney, he doesn't spell this out. He just opens this kind of window into John Grady's interstate. We don't, we don't know what's happening on his interstate on, his, on his interstate is what I said <laughs> in his state, but we can, it's really fun to hypothesize about what the absence of a mother would do to a young man in that world. And I think, I think you're exactly right, Heidi. He is the possibility of trying to get together with an unavailable woman just seems exactly right. Right.
0: Okay. I, I want to jump to another question because we're running out of time and I want to make sure we cover as many as we can. Amanda asks, is, I realize that the story is about John Grady, but if we were to read the remainder of the trilogy, do we ever find out Blevins' true identity? I think about him all the time. I only want a simple yes or no answer. No. I, you just read it.
1: Nope.
0: Great. Thank you. Um, okay. Sarah has a couple questions here and I want to share her second wait, one. Wait, wait. Was that question meant to be a
2: gatekeeper question about whether or not to read the rest of the Border Trilogy if the answer is I think yes she just, yeah. our answer is yes <laughs> so right. that you'll go if read the rest of the trilogy right.
1: you're not going to find out what happens to Blevins but you'll find out what happens to a lot of really other interesting people mm-hmm, and you mm-hmm. can definitely read them yeah. so.
0: <laughs> we already know what happens to Blevins
1: right that's true that's true. But we don't we don't get the a full bolt. backstory. He does remain a bit of a mystery in the novel. And it does feel it does feel like it's hang you're hanging in that, especially if you actually do care about this kid. But so but that's intentional. We're supposed to feel that hanging feeling, but we do not indeed find out any more about him.
0: There's only two ways you could find you could like truthfully find out more about Blevins. One, we get a novel about Blevins, like a prequel novel about Blevins. Two, John Grady goes in search of the information. And like
1: and he did, and we and still know what he was, Yeah, I mean, and we, we already we didn't
0: get any more clear, and so like you think
1: fan he, fiction. You should yeah, right, Ew, you
0: no,
2: no, 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 <laughs> no. Kidding. Um, okay, Sarah asked. We got the Aeneid. Get thee behind me, Heidi. That's how we got the Aeneid. Is that what you said? <laughs> what
0: <I> said. <laughs> to be so fair, bad. Tim. Tim. To be fair, it's also how we got a little known play that you, or a, uh, an increasingly well known play that you wrote. That we all that's got to right. see, like, at the conference. Oh, that's fan fiction that's like G.K. Yeah. Chester and George Bernard, yeah. Bernard
1: Shaw. <laughs> no. Yeah. No. No, it's, uh, no, it's not. You just, don't like just, fan fiction. It's, it's something else. Just kidding.
0: I'm just kidding. <laughs> okay, oh, homage. Um, okay. Sarah says, McCarthy talks about blood a lot, but also consistently uses ghostly imagery to describe important pe- important or noble people or animals. The natives at the beginning are a nation and the ghost of a nation, she says. Alejandro has some pretty spectral qualities. of the lake. And I'm sure the phrase ghost of a horse is in the book somewhere, although I couldn't find it when looking for it. Why ghosts when what John Grady Cole loves most about people and horses is quote the blood and the heat of the blood that ran them through them. It didn't seem like Cormac McCarthy was just resorting to ghosts to create a haunting atmosphere. It's a great question. So is it just this atmosphere question or is there something more going on with this ghost, this ghost theme? Heidi, uh,
1: yeah, just pointed at Tim. Tim yeah, she just pointed at Tim. Go first, because I keep talking and answering the questions first, and that's getting rude. So, Tim, thoughts on ghosts? So,
2: your <laughs> resolution is the hardest question that we've yet received. Oh, I'm actually going to like as a kindness. No, just as a kindness. kindness to you, Tim, we'll let you handle that one. Is that what happened? To Heidi?
1: <laughs> you want me to take this?
2: <laughs> I'm thinking about it. It's a hard question.
1: Yeah. So I'm going to take this. Yeah, please. Um, the, um, the 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 I I applaud you for noticing the ghost thing. We didn't talk about it too much. Um, Again, the border trilogy, right? So we have this movement between worlds. And one of the movements between worlds that we have in the novel is life and death. And this... um, I think that there were a couple of readers who made a really, really important connection between this story and the story of Orpheus and Eurydice in mythology, in which Orpheus loses his love and he goes down into the underworld and he melts the heart of Persephone, queen of heaven with his beautiful music that he plays. Um, And she agrees to let him take Eurydice's ghost back up to, to to the real world, but he has to agree not to turn around and look at her the entire time. And he almost makes it and right at the threshold or the border between worlds, he can't stand it anymore. And he turns around and looks at her and she, you know, reaches out her ghostly hand towards him and then disappears back into death. And that story, I think that comes up again and again and again in the novel, particularly with John Grady Cole and Alejandra, of course, right? He almost gets her, gets her to a border town and almost can, Convinces her And then loses her at the last minute because she belongs to this culture. Um, and so this idea of ghosts of, of what is really alive, right? Like his attraction to the concrete and the living and the bleeding and, and in order to uh, show that something is real, it has to bleed. It has to show it's its virility the fact that it is alive um and it has to shed blood in order to be real right this is a very mythological and archetypal idea um and and yet also the the world is populated by these ghostly reality like these these creatures that are not really real right and Alejandro is one of them right because he doesn't get to keep her she remains in some sense, a ghost from the beginning. And, and so this idea of moving between the borderlands, um, or excuse me, of him dwelling in the borderlands and moving between worlds is kind of this haunting, I use that word intentionally, a motif that goes throughout the, um, throughout the novel. And this idea of the things that are bloodless and the things that shed blood to become real are this contrast and this, this, this image throughout the novel.
2: I can't do better than that, David.
0: Want to try? No, <laughs> I just.
1: I'm not answering the next question. Ask it to Tim.
0: Oh, you are <laughs> going to be so upset.
1: Oh, man. Uh, I take it back. Oh,
0: wow. This is, oh, wow. I could not have planned. I get a, better a home run question.
2: Is
1: this I a duty that. and desire <laughs> question?
0: <laughs> I could not have planned <laughs> a better question to come next. You, when Heidi says. Duty and desire," in yeah.
2: the character of John Grady Cole.
1: answer the question?
0: Aaron I'm asks. Sure. asks <laughs> Aaron points out that Tim once said that you mentioned trying to casually run into or stalk Cormac McCarthy. Oh. Mm-hmm. So with that in mind, if you could host Cormac McCarthy for dinner, what would you serve? And more <gasps> I'm importantly, totally what kind of pie would you serve for dessert? See, I told you. So what are you going to serve Cormac McCarthy for, for dinner? And what kind of pie would you serve for dessert?
2: Go ahead, Heidi. I want to hear this.
1: Uh, I would definitely serve sous vide steaks and... Some delicious thing on the side, you, maybe like
0: you'd serve fancy steaks to Cormac McCarthy. That's a man who just wants a steak cooked over a fire.
1: I'm gonna cook it over a fire, but I'm also gonna sous vide it for an hour beforehand.
2: What oh. is this? What is a sous vide steak?
1: Tim, you gotta come over to my house.
2: Gladly, we having sous vide steak.
1: Yes. So sous vide is this like French water method cooker. It's like yeah, it's a way of cooking meat. So like you yeah. It's, del- it's wonderful. You got to look it up. sous vide, and get one and serve it to Cormac McCarthy. And for pie for dinner, I mean, it would be, it's summer. So I still have summer pie in my head, but so I would definitely make Cormac McCarthy a peach pie with homemade uh, yes, vanilla come ice cream. On. But if I had to choose a citrus pie, it would for sure be lemon meringue and not key lime. So
2: so Heidi, you remember when we were talking about getting, you know, packing for the Searcy conference mm-hmm. and kind of- like pre-pep, you know, pre-gaming what you're going to wear and all that sort of stuff. <laughs> and you were like about two weeks ahead. You were, you yeah. were pretty confirmed on what you'd be wearing and all that sort of uh-huh. stuff. I, apparently that same rubric applies to food, you preparing a meal for Cormac McCarthy. Anything
1: like,
0: that you matters. Ready you got to plan it. Go. You what are I mean, what wine go? are you serving?
1: Oh, uh, why do I serve? No, see, that is a great question. So, you'd have to serve an American wine to Cormac McCarthy, right? This is an American meal. So,
2: could it be from California? Could you actually serve him get my a wine from California? Which is
1: down in Georgia. Um,
2: I can serve him Muscadine and, wine.
1: Yeah, no. Don't that's do that. not that. Take it back. <laughs> I,
2: because it's terrible. Right. A, we would not serve it to Cormac McCarthy, but come on. That's a little bit more fitting than.
1: I uh, feel like he's a bourbon from, guy.
2: Yeah. He's a bourbon guy.
1: Yeah. You got to say, I think you got to go off bourbon. continent.
2: You got to go off continent. If you're going to serve him some wine. He's not afraid to speak in French.
1: French. Yep. That's very true. Yes. Well, I have, I'd have to check my wine cellar, happened? which is a cupboard in my in my kitchen. People probably would think that I would have a wine cellar, which I don't right now. Someday I might. That's a goal. But right now I have a cupboard right now. above my oven that I keep wine in. So
0: what do I'm you do? What are you serving, <laughs> Tim? If I have to serve wine? No, just dinner. you haven't, you haven't done that. Titus Andronicus pie.
1: Yeah, that's right. I don't know.
2: Titus Andronicus pie would be like actual.
1: You're serving him as family.
2: Human flesh. Yeah, yeah, I'd be serving a his pie. Family. Wow. I don't, I'm, that would be that like a Shakespeare celebration. Reference, <laughs> yes, yes. Yeah.
1: Well, you know, classical education isn't the whole point is to get all the jokes. And so Right. Yep. Yeah, <laughs> right. yeah. That's a Shakespeare joke right there. Yeah. God, it's a little dark, but it's yeah. Tim. So
0: <laughs> Darken Shakespeare. It's Tim. Yeah. It's like, you know my brand. Right. Yep. What are you feeding him for dinner besides his family in a pie? <laughs> well, that's it's Titus Andronicus' pie is filling. <laughs>
1: Tim, don't worry. Corman McCarthy comes to your house for dinner. I'm gonna fly out and cook the dinner for okay. you. Okay, okay, yes. good.
2: I'll be like Mr. McCarthy, put your feet up. David it's and be-
1: I'll be there and we'll yeah. we'll make the dinner. And yeah. you just have a nice conversation and sit at his feet. We'll be Martha, you be Mary.
2: Absolutely. So. Absolutely. Um by the way, I just one more thing. I know that Corman McCarthy is in his 80s. And there was a rumor about six months ago that Cormac McCarthy had died. Right. Um, It was false. But he's getting late in his life. And I'm telling you, the day that Cormac McCarthy dies, I am going to be, like, fundamentally sad. It's not going to be, you know, a a former American president dies. It's always kind of sad when a former American president dies, even if you weren't crazy about that president. You know, when McCarthy dies, I'm going to be blue. I am going to hang my flag at half-mast.
1: Oh, Tim. We're here yeah. for Yeah,
2: There's a couple of others. Wendell Berry
1: mm-hmm.
2: and Alistair McIntyre.
1: Those are good sadnesses. David, what are you going to serve him for dinner?
2: Don't say Titus Andronica Pie. It's taken. Uh, yeah, I can't take that. Um,
0: I'd probably Sad? go like... <laughs> caesar salad yeah <laughs> um, i think i would go like i think i would do like paella uh, or however you i can never say that with Fancy. like with like some uh like charcuterie nope. chorizo oh dried chorizo and so
1: just like tuesday at david's house
0: <laughs> yeah right uh, yeah no tuesday at my house is like hey i'm coming home from the bookstore let's pick up a pick up a pizza um and maybe like calamari, mm. calamari, something to like that. something like that. Yeah,
1: yeah. Unexpected, right? He's with like too many a many Spanish days. wine,
0: Albarino and Albarino, or like Rioja. That's the answer like to the that. wine question. Yeah, like a good Spanish wine, something that's like got the flavors that he's from that you would think of with his work, but isn't necessarily like we're getting fajitas, <laughs> 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 some ranch style beans. <laughs>
1: I love this. By
0: the way, ranch style beans are delicious. They're delicious. Okay. Um so there's a question here. What is the difference between a western and a southern gothic novel? And I mean, the obvious answer is one's in the south and one's in the west. But like they're going to have some common ground in terms of themes and tropes and archetypes, archetypal masculine journey and so forth. Uh Can you go through, Heidi, first, name one or two things that you would say are some distinct differences between the Southern Gothic novel and the Western novel? And then um, same thing with you, Tim.
1: Right. Yeah, no, I I like this question. I think it's a good question. The setting, obviously. Uh, And then what you just said about the archetypal, what you both have said about the archetypal masculine journey. Is uh, mostly associated with the West, right? So a Western novel has this, has some kind of quest or rescue motif to it. Uh, And it's usually a lone male protagonist who has to save a town or go on a journey to find or save something um, and to protect something. Um, And so, in many ways, it's a lot like. A medieval knight quest. Like mm. I think that that westerns have a lot in common uh, with that particular literary tradition. Uh, a southern gothic novel, on the other hand, uh, is characterized by the grotesque. So it's some kind of extreme situation in which a character or a group of characters has to extricate themselves, and there's something like disturbing or grotesque going on. Um, in In the situation, um, both of them have in common this like American theme. Um, so Gothic is different from Southern Gothic, uh, in the sense that a gothic novel we've already talked about Gothic novels, and we did Rebecca and Jane Eyre, uh, so go back and listen to that. Um, but the Southern Gothic is specifically American. And when with American novels, you have an emphasis on the setting, you have an emphasis on the individual. Um, and so that the Western and the Southern Gothic are going to have in common. Anything to add to that, Tim?
2: Well, a good example of a Southern Gothic that just fits your description to a T is Flannery O'Connor's A Good Man is Hard to Find. Yes. So it's this family. The grotesque is this misfit character that we hear about all throughout the story until we finally actually meet the misfit character and spoiler alert, go ahead 30 seconds. If you haven't read the short story and you need to read the short story, if you've not read a good man, Is hard to find like press pause. You got to go read that story. The misfit shows up and he shoots the main character, the grandmother character three times and it's jarring and it's
1: he murders the whole family
2: murders the whole family yeah baby everybody everybody so
1: grotesque and extreme
2: yeah and most of flannery o'connor's work kind of fits neatly within that mold Mm -hmm. pretty violent and like crucial moments of grace that only happen from something really shocking happening heidi that was i want to compliment you that was a really excellent discussion Thanks, of these two nearby genres.
1: Thanks, Tim. You're the best.
2: And I also want to say I'm so glad that you covered it because I would have failed.
1: I, I'm sure that that's not true.
0: No, that, it is. Yep, it is true. All right, guys, that's enough.
1: Hi, David. David. We true. also really like you, David. You're great. Do you have anything to add to what we said? I
0: didn't hear anything you said because I, <laughs> I got a text. <laughs> Listeners should
2: know that David had to step away. And so Heidi and I were kind of like prepared to <laughs> fill in while David probably tended to bookstore business. Yeah. I got
0: a um, text message that like the, all the software upstairs had crashed and wasn't working. So oh. Lord have mercy. So something to deal with after we're done here on the show. Um uh, Tim,
1: if the next thing you say is, and so for Tim McIntosh, <laughs> <for anybody." laughs>
0: then you wouldn't blame me at all.
1: Exactly. Um. That's right. We'd be like, good job.
0: <clears throat> okay, Tim, here's a question from Laura. Came in via email. I wonder what you all think about the conversation where the Hassan Dotto asks John Grady Cole about whether just the two of you wrote in from Texas. The fact that the Hassendato presses the point seems to imply that he knows that there were three people. Why do you think JGC lies about it? Making a conscious choice to lie doesn't seem in keeping with his character. And if the Hassan dato uh, knows JGC is lying, why is he still willing to take him on? Mm-hmm. Everything about that question
2: is true and good and right. I think that it does seem a break with John Grady Cole's character. So it had to be something. He had a significant internal pressure to lie. Also, I think that Hassan Dotto does know the question that he's asking. I think he does suspect that it was not just the two of them. They had somebody else. My best guess about why John Grady Cole lies is that he realizes that by answering yes, he's basically lighting a fuse on a stick of dynamite. Because I think that he probably thinks the horse was stolen, the um, horse that Blevins was riding, and to be riding a stolen horse in a foreign land, especially if that horse is a Mexican horse. I just think that that is something that he doesn't want to get, have any part of. And in fairness, he wasn't there. Blevins and John Grady Cole weren't really riding with, um, sorry, Rollins and John Grady Cole weren't really riding with Blevins. Blevins kind of tagged along. So I think he wanted to kind of cut responsibility for Blevins away from himself.
0: Hmm. Heidi, do you want to add anything to that?
1: Yeah, I think that the Hassan Dotto does not know that it is John Grady Cole but has heard about the horse theft and is just asking the question, right? Was it you? That's what he's asking. And then, you know how I think John Grady Cole answers that the same way that they, not me, just they, a nebulous they might say, if you get pulled over on the way home and the officer asks if you've been drinking tonight and you had a glass of wine with dinner, you still say no. Like, Mm. (laughs) you always say Mm. no, right? I don't say that. That's just what other people might say. But because you're getting yourself in a situation that you then will have to kind of bear the brunt of when you haven't really done anything wrong, right? And I think it's kind of that same that same pressure within himself at least that's how i interpreted it but the book doesn't really tell us he could have had different reason um but yeah i don't think the hasendado knows that it's john grady cole i don't think he's testing him i think he just heard the rumor and is asking the gringo a question
0: got it okay this question comes from barbara we're moving along here just because of the questions you know the volume and so forth why did McCarthy make JGC a 16-year-old and thus a minor and not an 18-year-old who'd be a legal young adult? Wouldn't he have been more believable as one who had struck out on his own and experienced all that is in the book in Mexico and then back in Texas if he'd been a little older? Saw different variations of this question over the course of the last couple of months. Tim, would you, do you have any thoughts on this?
2: Does being
0: an 18-year-old at this
2: point in American history really mean a lot? Maybe it does. I'm
0: unfamiliar with how potent of a legal definition like dick clark or someone come up with the term teenager some like celebrity thing i don't know i a celebrity but she's
2: not even talking about it in terms of like a social category i think she's talking about it also as as the rights accrued by turning a certain age just like we accrue the rights to drive when we're 16 vote when we're 19
0: yeah, and I think she's also saying, like, if he's older, the things that he's capable of doing would be more believable.
2: In, okay, we had this conversation. Someone waited on the Facebook page about this. Um, gosh, it seems unrealistic that he's only 16 years old and he's so mature and so capable. And i it was really interesting that the people who were raising children on farms and ranches – were kind of unequivocal. Yes, this is a realistic portrayal of a 16-year-old. It is not a realistic portrayal of your typical suburban American in 2021, but I think it's an absolutely believable portrayal of the maturity of John Grady Cole, given the the social context that he was born in. He was given a massive amount of responsibility when and the things that 16, he had to endure 15, 14. Yeah. And he's endured so much. I think, I think that question is more like, Hey, when I look at other 16 year olds at my public high school, I don't see John Grady Cole. And that's absolutely right. That doesn't mean that that John Grady Cole is a completely unrealistic character. He's com- he's from a different world than the one that we're from that most of us are from. But I think like the people who are born on ranches and farms who weighed in on the Facebook page, I really believe their account of the sort of responsibilities that they've given to their sons and daughters at a very young age. Somebody was talking about, was it their five-year-old was on a four-wheeler out kind of like turning cattle in a pasture? I was like, five, really? Maybe that was, maybe that's, maybe I'm recollecting. I could see my five-year-old. Really young.
1: I think he's too young. Really? And not because of his ability with horses and not because of... Because everything you're saying, I think, is true. Like, not because of that. Because of his emotional and relational maturity and because of the wisdom with his words, I think he's way too young. I think he should have been in his
0: 20s. Huh. But then he's not an orphan anymore.
1: I think that that's true. And I I think that that's probably the reason. Um, Because he's... Cormac McCarthy wrote him on purpose right and he's smarter than me and so but i i i just cannot accept john grady cole not with his abilities like that i buy yeah. but with his maturity as a man his manhood he does not seem like a teenager he has so i mm. he's too wise to be 16. i don't think it works Can but I put he did it on purpose
2: a lot of what we attribute as wisdom in the character of John and Grady Cole is actually silence.
1: Yeah, agreed. And I don't so know one w- single silent 16 year old boy. I know a lot of 16 year old boys. And to your point about no, like no, 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 a no, no, different no. time. On. So hold on. Yeah.
2: No, what I'm saying is, I think there are glimmers that he's genuinely wise. But I think actually as readers, we get a little glimmer of his wisdom and then we actually attribute more wisdom than he actually has because he's quiet most of the novel. And so we kind of apply the still waters run deep metaphor to him and we're like, yeah, he's really, really wise. Okay. He is, but I think we actually are giving him more credit than the text gives him.
1: Yeah, maybe so.
0: I don't have a problem with the idea that he's just like preternaturally wise young person. I don't know. I, that's not, I, I just kind of like can accept that in a, in a book. <laughs> I don't, but I can see how that would be well, harsh. Hey, Brandon wants to know in what, in what way are the horses pretty? Yeah,
1: he does.
0: Dara says, I don't it's know. But they all line. are. Yeah. 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 But with, because it's Brandon, we're not going to answer it. Or should <laughs> we, should we? And what, I mean, I think the, he kind of tells us like, you got to read the book. If you want to, like, if you don't, if you come away from the book, not understanding the way the horses are pretty, then you need to go back and read it again. We can't help you on this podcast. <laughs> Jill says, I love the ending and agree that the novel could not have ended any other way and still been telling the truth. But do you all find the no- the ending hopeful? Do you think we're supposed to come away believing that life is mainly about the bright places under the streetlights or the darkness, uh, or the darkness in between? Is this Jill Corser? Mm-hmm. It is indeed. Yeah one of our favorites
1: yeah it's a great question i think both i think that i don't think i find the ending hopeful i find it poignant i find it bittersweet i find it emotional uh and i but i wouldn't say i think it's hopeful i don't think it's despairing though i think i think it just ends with a dot 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 and i think that's kind of perfect for this novel and for john grady cole um as far as the second, I love that you, I love Jill, that you brought that image back into the conversation that David emphasized in our last conversation of the the darkness between the pools of light. Um, and I think different readers are going to have different responses to that. Um, so I think it's not really an either or as much as it is a both and, and up to the, you know, if every book is a mirror that you hold up to yourself, what do you see, right? Um, and that is... I think one of the interpretive questions raised by the novel.
0: The question of whether books or stories end hopefully is fascinating to me because I don't ever think that way. Like it doesn't, I don't tend to care. Do you guys like, is that a question that you find yourself asking at the end of a book very often?
2: As in, was this hopeful?
0: Yeah. Is this ending hopeful?
2: I don't, I don't ask myself that question either. I I more ask myself, is this germane to the whole of the story that we've read? I mean, if if John Grady Cole signed up to be, I don't know, if he joined the circus at the end of this book and got married and had twins, I would say no. The answer is no. That is not in keeping (laughs) with the book so I, I I'm i with you David I don't ask whether or not it's hopeful or not
1: I ask I, think I do I I think I do ask that I think that I I care what happens to the characters in a novel a lot and I I have I have like feelings about it so I think that but to your point, if John Grady Cole joined the circus, it wouldn't be a good novel. So I probably wouldn't read it. But I don't know. I might um, read that. To,
2: he takes up
0: clogging. Cormac he takes up McCarthy up, on, at the, the circus? Clogging. I'd read that.
1: Right? I, I mean, I'm interested in a novel that Cormac McCarthy might write about the circus. I feel like that would be just really worth reading.
2: I'd buy that.
1: For sure. In a hot yeah. second. Um. Yeah. So, but I do ask myself at the end of a novel, especially a novel with this much, um, this, this many shadows in between the pools of light. I do ask myself at the end, does this feel despairing to me? I'm, I'm more likely to ask, to, to ask, does it feel despairing to me than to ask for hope? Because in a novel like this, I'm not necessarily looking for a happy ending. I know <laughs> it's going to end with some kind of, um, the, in keeping with the, as you said, Tim, in keeping with the tone of the rest of the novel. So I'm not expecting a little bow and a happily ever after. But I am going to ask in a novel like this, is this nihilistic? Is this despairing? Does this give us a bleak view of the world? And yeah. Uh, um, and partly because I don't like nihilism, and I do believe in in meaning, but also partly because I care so much about the characters as I read, I get really emotionally involved in books, and I want some kind of possibility of goodness at the end of a novel like this.
0: When you're working on when you're writing something, do you ever do you ever think to do you ask yourself, is this hopeful or is this not hopeful yeah. at the end?
1: Yeah. Do I you do. Tim? Do you guys?
0: Never. No. But I'm not I trying even,
1: to make a happy ending.
0: I probably actually mean, would I mean, lean more towards like trying to be overtly unhopeful. Like <laughs> and then he yeah. died. No, I just don't like friendless say. alone. Well, I was just childless. gonna say I think I'm way more interested in like, does this ending seem right? Like Yeah, am I telling yeah, a right. good story? Am yeah. I telling
1: a good story? And it wouldn't be a good story if it end if this novel ended with John Grady Cole, if this novel ended with John Grady Cole dead in a ditch somewhere, it wouldn't really be a good story. I think that there's there is I don't think that every story has only one ending, but I do think that there is an ending to a novel that is appropriate to the novel, to your point that you both just made. Mm-hmm. And... um. So, and I think Cormac McCarthy and from every novel I've read by him, I think that they end perfectly, but very few of, I mean, they just, they're not happy. They're not tied up.
2: Have you read The Road, Heidi? hmm Yeah. That's Do you think that's a happy ending? ending?
1: No, I I mean, no, I don't. I think it's a hopeful ending, but it's not happy. It's, yeah. It's really heart-wrenching. It's perfect. It's perfect. The end of the road is perfect, but I did cry tears, not just like little teary eye. like it wasn't Uh like a nice little wiping away at the corners. It was like, so it's emotional. He's such an emotional writer because he makes you care about these characters, which is how you should feel about characters in a novel. Um, But he's asking hard questions and so hard things happen.
0: Do you think that most of the time when we talk, when we say we're looking for a hopeful ending, we actually mean we're looking for a happy ending?
1: I do. And that's not what we're saying. Hope is different from happiness.
0: <laughs> right. Yeah. Right.
2: I saw my friend Lander at the Circe conference. Lander is. Um,
1: he lives in Colorado. He's, he's great. His
2: father lives mm-hmm. in Colorado. And he kind of pulled me aside. And he's like, hey, I just want to let you know that I recently read The Road again. And I was like, oh, brother, how? I mean, how, you how doing? are you? <laughs> yeah, how are you? And he's like, oh my gosh. It was just, it was hard. I mean, it really was, we were talking about it like we had just endured, like he had just endured like COVID or the loss of a family member or something like that. I want to let you know, I just read the road again. Oh, you just want to pat him on the shoulder. Yeah, like, hey, come I
1: here. I see you. I see yeah, I you. See you. Yeah. I
0: know what you're going through. Speaking of going through something, I feel like Cindy went through something. Cindy Weiser is her name.
1: Mm-hmm. And I feel like
0: she went through something because she says, I haven't heard you mention the lack of punctuation. So I have three questions. <laughs> does this really not bother any of us? She f- says she found it so distracting she had to stop reading and finish the book on audio. Two, why does McCarthy do this? This was my first book of his, but my son told me the road is the same. So this is his usual. Uh, it gives off a norms of writing such as quotation marks are for lesser writers vibe. And then three, really, doesn't this bother anyone else? Just me. Just me, question mark. So we talked about polysyndeton and the sort of Old Testament approach that he's got going on with his writing. Should we talk a little bit about this punctuation thing before we go?
2: Yeah, you know, we did kind of ignore this. I think probably because we've all, it it, it feels to me like you, when you start reading McCarthy, it can bother you. It can be a little bit distracting. And then maybe a couple hours in, and maybe Cindy just didn't get past this threshold. Then you just, you're kind of used to it and you stop, at least I stopped paying attention to it. Um, I, I, I just have to tell a quick story. My friends, Andrew and Marianne, they were telling me before they ever read Quirment McCarthy, they are like, McCarthy sucks. He doesn't use punctuation. And I almost like, I was like, you guys. Slept over something. I love you. I can't understand flailing the nonsense. Arms. That's, my arms were flailing like- a sock puppet in front of Michelin <laughs> tires, and then they started. Then they both read Cormac McCarthy they're like, "I repent in dust and ashes. I am so sorry. This is a master at work." So, I think that it's very strategic. I don't think that it's just um, elitist or anything like that. I think that it forces you into, especially on dialogue to really immerse yourself in who is speaking. So if you can hear the different kind of voices speaking, if you know this is John Grady Cole and his voice is gonna, in my mind, is gonna sound like this. This is Alejandra, her voice is gonna sound like this. I think it takes you deeper into the novel. And I, at this point, when I read his dialogue, I never get turned around about who's speaking. That may be a slight example. There might've been one occasion when we most recently read all the pretty horses and did a podcast on it that I got a little bit turned around on the dialogue, but I just find myself going deeper into the novel because those little hints, which are punctuation are removed and I've got to work a little bit harder, which gets me a little bit deeper.
0: So he, go ahead.
1: I, I, I don't know why you guys can't use commas. Like, I, I don't. I agree on the dialogue for sure. I agree on the dialogue for sure because it makes it forces you to immerse yourself within the story. It's not bad to have to work hard and try to figure out who's saying what. Like, that's that's fine. I didn't even notice it after a while, but I'm. But the first Cormac McCarthy novel that I read, I was I was a little bit like, who do you think you are? Like, you can't just like. Throw Jane away Joyce? English punctuation because you're Cormac Pun- McCarthy.
0: Punctuate like, Most just
1: just use commas and periods. Like it's not, it's not. I'm well, we're he not uses asking periods. for the world. He uses
0: periods.
1: Well, he just he writes such really long. I I think he's brilliant, and I'm I just I, I for the first like like I said the first now I'm just used to it. I just accept it. Right, this is Cormac McCarthy. This is how he writes. He's so brilliant. I accept it. But I do remember, to Cindy's point, to affirm her, I, I remember reading my first Cormac McCarthy novel, which was No Country for Old Men, and just being like, would it kill you to use a comma every once in a while? <laughs> like, just because you're so great, you can just, like, not use punctuation at all. So, this was my, th- I, I'll, I'll say now I accept it, but I still think it might be a tiny bit Guys, pretentious.
0: punctuation is an is arbitrary set of rules that were invented mm-hmm. by printers in the 15th century. That's a fact. That's just a fact. So everything you just said it could be true except for the word arbitrary. All of what you just said
2: is true <laughs> except for the word arbitrary. That's what we protect. Now I'm suddenly like
0: on Cindy's side. They're just a set of rules made up by printers. Uh, I don't know what that has to do with anything. But although the first Published The first record that we have of punctuation, I believe, was from playwrights. Basically, it was like, this person is talking now. And it was so that the actors knew, could see faster who was supposed to be talking. I think that... Um, we are the vanguard. Who's we? You and me and Heidi?
1: Well, I mean, uh oh. oh, playwrights. So yeah, I don't he
0: once told Oprah, on going back to his Oprah interview, he said, I believe in periods and capitals in the occasional comma, and that is it. If you write properly, you shouldn't have to punctuate I,
2: yes, yes, yes. How
0: you just okay? Made a if any,
2: if any classical educator comes up to me and makes me defend that for their f- like five year old students, I'm going to be like, come on, I don't mean it for someone who's just l- learning grammar. But I think we're re- we're adults reading an adult master, and I don't want to say like we've transcended yeah. punctuation. I don't think
0: that, but I do think that a lot of of course we've put. Punk- of course we've transcended punctuation punctuation is the definition limitation it's like only there because when you're reading the brain can't process things but the reality is that we every time we speak out loud we have transcended punctuation
2: but we have not transcended periods if you took the periods out of this book nobody would read this book we haven't transcended periods come on
1: yeah we're not james joyce
2: we're not (laughs) james joyce has periods He doesn't have quotation marks, and he like is not
0: comma friendly. It doesn't
1: friendly. feel like he has periods.
0: Every time so, we, well, anyway, this, this is, is a this conversation. Is a, this is a different guy. Yeah, Finnegan's wake doesn't like periods.
1: Anyway,
0: I, I do well, think well, that well, one of the reasons kind of it. that it's so stark is that, um, it, I think that is in, I think the lack of punctuation. There's an austerity to the way he writes that isn't keeping with the places where his stories take place, for sure. And I think that's important. I think that most of his stories take place in landscapes that are barren. And so the stories, the way you experience the story is a sort of objective correlative for the place itself and for the characters experiencing of that place. So I think that he, his, his style of writing and the formal, the way it looks on the page has an austerity to it. Uh, that is, that is consistent with that. Um,
2: And if you like, honestly, a lot of punctuation is just detritus, like Mr. Smith goes to Washington. If you took the period out of after MR, you don't lose anything aside from the habit of seeing it after MR commas, the most overrated piece of punctuation in the English language Followed I don't closely even know by if that's debatable. followed closely by the exclamation point, <laughs> and then the question mark. I defy anyone. I
1: challenge
2: any a challenge, listener.
1: A gauntlet thrown. A
2: gauntlet thrown. I challenge any listener.
1: I like commas, however, because commas make you pause. However, but so will say. Period. This is what I'm about to say. I think that Cormac McCarthy (laughs) is a master of the word and. So,
2: oh, yes, he is. He,
1: and and that is a hard word to use well if you're going to throw out the comma as detritus. You have to use and, and he does a great job. So I'll give him that.
0: Well, that's the polysyndeton. Yeah. Like that's meant to be the Old Testament oral tradition because that's what i'm saying when you have an when you're when you're trying to imitate oral tradition punctuation is you don't use the punctuation in the same way like when you're trying to make it sound like somebody's speaking people do not speak in punctuation we speak in the occasional pause and that is it um right we should end this podcast i just want to
2: i think that we should mimic something that Heidi just did I I, I want to make sure we get the exact wording right because I think like we were kind of stepping on Heidi's lines and Heidi said and this is what I want to say <laughs> isn't that is that what you said Heidi like maybe and this is what I want to say like <laughs> listen up boys
1: I had a thing I'm to gonna say. finish the thought I said it you were laughing but I said it our listeners heard me That's
0: so good I did just both (laughs) laugh Because of the face we got
1: (laughs) We got the stank eye
0: There was such a like I'm going to finish my lines Boys Boys (laughs) Hush Hush Do we Do any of you want to offer Any final thoughts You know This episode Would have been um, We should have had like Mezcal or something
1: Oh Mm. I love that idea That's what we should have Have you guys ever watched Drunk History (laughs)
0: Yeah, oh, I don't think we can oh, do Darkest We're
1: not going to do that, listeners. That was not, that was a joke.
2: It's a joke. It's lighten a joke. up. Yeah. <laughs> listeners, lighten up. When the cop pulls you over after That's you've right. had it, a mezcal, no. always say no.
0: Somebody
1: might say, but not me.
2: <laughs> they. Do you have, you have any final thoughts?
1: Nope.
2: Commas are the detritus of the punctuation world. <laughs> I do have a final thought. I just want to say everyone knows how much I love this book. My reading with my two close reads companions only enhanced the reading experience. I hope that we can continue to read Cormac McCarthy. And I am delighted, delighted listeners, that so many of you engaged so deeply in Cormac McCarthy. And I we were all a little bit nervous like man how's this going to go Cormac McCarthy he is a he can be a rough ride but it sounds like there might have been some conversions
1: yay
0: i thought he was going to say and reading it with my two closest friends
1: you got to get close to the mic david. get close to the mic
0: you told me to go back up somewhere you told me well, to go the, moderation to is the key closer. to ethics david That's right. I didn't I been the, the same. Ethics. The weird thing is, I actually didn't move further away. I've just been in the same place the whole episode. Um, I thought Tim was going to say, "Aside from the reading with my two I, I thought Tim was going to say, "And reading with my two closest friends."
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> and then it instead, he said, "Reading with my two close friends." Readers.
1: Now, <laughs> it's, now you have to say. Don't worry. It with my two my closest two, so friends. There you go. Yep. This
0: episode isn't going to end happily, but it might end hopefully. Mm.
1: Well done. Nice. I have nothing to add. I'm just getting a little well, slap for happy. You, honestly, I need some mezcal.
0: It's been like two hours. We we this is long. This, we've done spent so much time on this episode on the, on this book, and it's it's time. Yeah, I think it's time to go. Heidi, you don't have any other final thoughts? No,
1: but I'm going to... I guess my final thought is I'm actually... I'm going to miss Cormac McCarthy. Of course. Yes. This has been so great. Okay. <laughs> Reading <laughs> this book with my two close readers.
2: <laughs> yeah? Yeah.
1: What? Uh... Close. yeah alright gonna right, oh,
0: y'all. We're going to discuss the first five chapters of Their Eyes Are Watching God next week. That's by Zora Neale Hurston. So you've got, you, got, you know, the next week or so to... To get ready uh, for that conversation Tim you started reading that you said it was pretty good huh I have always heard about
2: their eyes are watching God and I it was like it's one of these books I'll get to it I'll get to it and then I started reading it oh it is delightful
1: it's so good I haven't read it I'm so excited
0: okay it's man, gonna be a good good conversation yeah
1: so yeah chapters delightful. one through
0: five for next week chapters one through five of that for next week so All right. Well, let's put people out of their misery. With that, for Heidi White and Tim McIntosh, I'm David Kern. Thanks so much for listening. And until next time, happy reading.